Hi, friends. Everybody doing okay? I'm very glad you're here. Because today we continue a series we're calling Stuff. Developing a Theology of Money and Possessions. Throughout this series, we're examining our relationship with money to determine if the almighty dollar goes up or to the place of the almighty God. But... Before we cover the controversial topic of money today, I prefer to ease into that conversation. So let's talk politics. <laughs> I'll tell you, I've never seen an election quite like this one. Now you're a groan. Since I've been of voting age, I don't recall participating in an election that is quite so polarizing, quite so divisive, quite so angry. Politics always bring out passion and opinions, but I've seen a bit more rancor this time. I, I, I've seen more criticism and contempt, even among friends and family. It's ugly. So, as election day draws near, I've decided to stick my nose in the election cycle and tell you how to vote as a follower of Jesus. <laughs> you ready for this? First, I think you should vote prayerfully. Have you prayed for Donald Trump lately? I didn't ask if you prayed against him. Have you prayed for him? What prayers have you prayed for Hillary Clinton? Look, I'm not saying you need to pray that the candidate or candidates you oppose get voted into office. I'm simply reminding you of the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Here's what I want you to do. Carve out a little time over the next couple days and pray for the candidates and their families. If you can't imagine anything good you can pray for a particular candidate, then you especially need to pray for that particular candidate. Ask God to give you a disposition of love toward the person and pray prayers of love and goodness and blessing over them. It'll be good for you and good for them. And let's continue this practice after the election, no matter who wins. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving, note how he piles up nouns, be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So, we're going to pray prayerfully, or we're going to vote prayerfully, but let's vote respectfully. Uh-oh! 1 Peter 2, verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. During this election, has your dialogue displayed proper respect for the candidates and those who support them? All the candidates? Have your tweets and Facebook posts shown honor? Now, it's true, their values may be diametrically opposed to yours. But you know what? We're all created in God's image. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reserves one of his harshest warnings for the contempt that we show one another with our words. If you are having trouble showing respect for someone because of their politics, here's your assignment. Repeat step one. Pray for them. It's hard to insult someone you prayed for earlier in the day. So let's vote prayerfully, respectfully, and finally, trustfully. I pastor a politically diverse community. 
So I regularly interact with people on all points on the political spectrum. I talk to people on the left. I talk to people on the right. I talk to people in the middle. Clearly, we live in a divided nation. But in this season, I found one common denominator that binds us all together. Fear. (laughs) People are afraid. People are afraid if that party wins. People are afraid if their party wins. People are afraid. That includes followers of Jesus. We're afraid our country is going to heck. We say it's going to heck in a handbasket. Because somehow going there in a handbasket is more terrifying. Now, I don't know about you, but I do dumb things when I'm afraid. And I say dumb things when I'm afraid. In our attempt to control a feared outcome, have we been guilty of lashing out with vitriol against a candidate or a candidate's supporters? What if there's a different way? What if there's a different way than ranting and raving? What if there's a different way than fussing and fuming and fretting? What if we did our politics like we have a shepherd, a shepherd who promises to lead and guide even through the valley of the shadow of death? Now, in our most objective moments, I think we'd all agree. Our God has dealt with bigger political problems than the ones presently facing the United States of America. We can trust him. I don't know if you're an American citizen or not, but if you're a follower of Jesus, the Apostle Paul reminds you in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is King. His kingdom has come and is coming. Let's determine to wait for him, not with fear and dread, not with criticism and complaining. Let's wait for him with eager expectation because he's the hope of the world. Will you pray with me? Lord, in this moment, in this election season, Help us keep our eyes on you. Help us see that you are with us. Help us see that we can let go of the fear and the anxiety and the stressing and the striving. Because you're here. Lord, lead us this week to live out our discipleship to you prayerfully, respectfully, and trustfully. That we might reveal to the world who you really are. And now as we turn to the scriptures, show us how we should think and feel about money. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. So last Tuesday, Suzanne was out of town. I was going about my business around the house, tending to my children, doing chores. When I pick up a package from the doorstep... It's an envelope I've been waiting for. I know its contents without opening it. It's a book. A book I'd been looking for. A book I'd worked harder than usual to acquire. Waited weeks for it. It finally arrived. Came in an envelope like this one. I pull the strip to reveal its contents. Pull it out. And I'm disappointed. The book's cover's bent. I'm miffed. The book I'd waited weeks to receive, it's damaged. And I know getting an unblemished copy would take an act of Congress, so I'm annoyed. (laughs) Then I flip the book over to find it's covered in goop. I don't know what the heck it is, but I ain't happy. I peel the goop from the book's binding with my hands, and I discover it's a white, silky substance, very soft, very sticky. took about half a second for me to realize I was holding in my hands a spider's nest. And on my fingertips was an angry, furry spider. 
I fling the book under the kitchen counter with a scream. My teenage daughter who's doing homework at the table inquires, Dad, you okay? Now, at this moment I realize, when I hurled the book onto the countertop, my furry friend went flying. I can't find him anywhere. Dad, what's wrong? Tell you in a minute, Emma. Now, what do you think I think the spider went? I tear my shirt from my body. I ruffle my hair. Emma's watching me from a distance. Dad? Wait a minute, Emma. Now remember, I don't know where this book shipped from. Kalamazoo, Katmandu, wherever its origin, the spider is almost assuredly deadly. And to be clear, this is not the book. That book was burned. I didn't snap a photo, but this is how I remember that spider looking. And I just set that loose in my house. Then I had to tell my daughters about our new house guest. They each had the same reaction individually. I sit next to my teenager at the table. Emma, I've got good news and bad news. Someone's staying for dinner. Now, as I'm explaining it to her, when I get to the word spider, do you know what she does? Absolutely. This is what she does. This is what her sister did too. Now, in this moment, I envision I'm going to have to fork it out for a fumigator and for a week's worth of hotel rooms because there is no way that my girls are going to sleep or eat or breathe in a house with the exotic spider of death roaming about. <laughs> Not what I ordered. And I had no warning. Last week, we read Paul's warning about money. This week, we'll read similar words from Jesus. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Jesus says to anyone who will listen, beware. Greed is dangerous. But most significantly, greed disguises itself. Like a spider creeps its way into an envelope to lay its eggs, greed has a silent way of slipping into your soul without you knowing it. Jesus says, guard your soul from it because greed sneaks up on you. As you study the Gospels, it may surprise you how often and how vividly Jesus talks about money. On one occasion, Jesus warns his disciples, Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In this passage, Jesus warns his listeners that they will be tempted to treat money like God. There's something about money. Here, the word money is the Greek word mamonas. Uh, but mamonas is not originally a Greek word. It's a transliteration of the Aramaic word mamon. Maybe you're familiar with the old translation. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Now, throughout the scriptures, mammon itself is rarely the problem. The question is, how do we respond to it? Jesus is saying, there's something about money. There's something about money. Money is powerful. Its promises are grand. Its shelter looks so secure that the almighty dollar can actually usurp the place of the almighty God. There's something about money. The word mammon stems from the Hebrew word aman, which means trust or reliance. Money, property, and possessions are things we can easily put our trust in, just like God. Now, it makes sense if you think about it. Money promises four things to its servants. Power, 
protection, provision, and pleasure. Money promises power, protection, provision, and pleasure. No wonder we trust it like a God. It acts like a God. In his letter to the Colossian church, the apostle Paul commanded, Colossians 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Paul equates greed with idolatry. Idolatry was arguably the most heinous sin in the Hebrew Bible, breaking the first commandment to have no other gods before him. How is greed idolatry? Think about it like this. Worship of an idol or God himself is about love, trust, and service. If you worship an idol, you love your idol. You're devoted to it. You trust it to provide for you, making your crops grow and your cattle thrive. And you serve its purposes on the earth. See where this is going? We love money. We trust money. We serve money. Treat it like a God. But Jesus says, make no mistake. No one can serve two masters. Ask yourself, does money tell you what to do? Does money boss you around? And dictate how you're going to live your life? Do you put your confidence in it? Do you feel feel peace only if there's enough cash in the bank? If your investments are doing well? There's something about money. Whenever money is discussed in church, the blood pressure of the listener immediately climbs. Why do people get so uptight when ministers talk about money? Well... We've all seen pastors and preachers distort what the Bible says for selfish gain. And because of the abuses of some, it's become taboo for pastors to preach about the subject. I think that's true. But that may not be the only reason people squirm. Oh, there's something about money. While the abuses of this teaching are real, I wonder... If they've served as a helpful excuse for us to dodge this important issue of the heart. But Jesus won't let us do so so easily. He loves us too much. Luke recounts one occasion in the ministry of Jesus. We find him where we often find him. Teaching the crowds about the kingdom of God. As Jesus teaches, Luke tells us a man interrupts him with a request. Luke chapter 12 verse 13. Somewhere in the crowd... Somewhere in the crowd, someone in the crowd, sorry, said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, the Torah, the Jewish law, offered regulations on matters of inheritance, but the law didn't account for any and every nuance or situation. So it was common for a rabbi like Jesus to settle a dispute by making a ruling, a judgment, according to his interpretation of the law. By calling him teacher, the man recognizes Jesus' authority as a rabbi. But note the way he puts words to his request. Is he looking for an interpretation of the law? The man doesn't seek the wisdom of Jesus, only the authority of Jesus, so he can get what he wants from his brother. We don't know the specifics of the family struggle, but we can assume he's the younger brother because he needs the leverage of someone in authority to make a ruling on his behalf against the one in control, which would be the firstborn. However, verse 14, Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Man sounds a bit awkward in English and it's awkward in Greek as well. Jesus addresses him as a stranger. While in this conversation, Jesus rejects the role of judge regarding the man's inheritance, he does, however, take up another role that can only be his. Jesus is the judge of man's heart. And he sees right through him to the core of his request. He sees something more threatening than a lack of provision or even a rift in his family. He refuses to participate. At this point, Jesus turns to the crowd, Luke, 12 verse 15 then he said to them watch out be on your guard against all kinds of greed the sharpness of his words gets our attention beware be on your guard like a soldier preparing for an enemy's attack knowing his life is at stake 
Jesus wants you to guard your soul because greed sneaks up on you when you least expect it. His words paint the picture of an enemy who's out to get you, an enemy who copes to creep up on you when you're not looking for him. There's a reason the early church identified greed as one of the seven deadliest sins. Jesus says, guard your soul from it. Now, disciples of Jesus in the room, are we listening? As followers of Jesus, are we doing enough to guard our souls from greed? The Greek word in Luke 12 for greed is pleonexia. Now, pleonexia means the desire for more. The etymology of the word is intriguing. Pleon means more. Ego or ego means I. Literally, I have more or I want more. Greed is an insatiable craving, the ravenous desire for more and more and more. Jesus warns, beware. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Then he explains, verse 15, life does not consist in abundance in an abundance of possessions. There's more to this life than cars and clothes and cash, but you wouldn't necessarily know that by looking at our lives. Jesus illustrates this point with a parable, verse 16. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. The man in the parable had a good year. As far as we know, he acquired his wealth through legal means. In fact, one might make an argument that his wealth was a blessing from God. God often blesses people with financial prosperity. And there's nothing wrong with being rich. But God watches carefully how the rich use their riches. Verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now that's a nice problem. And a legitimate problem. Verse 18. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. At first glance, this may appear to be simply a shrewd business decision. But there's more going on here. The man boasts, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. Verse 19. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat drink, and be merry. Did you notice how many times in the last few verses the landowner has used the words I and my? They show up even clearer in other translations. Here's the English Standard Version, verse 17. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You see, this parable is not about small barns or big barns. It's about the heart. This man's soul is self-centered and self-indulgent. I'm reminded profitable money management is not always moral money management. He thinks he's got it made for years. However, verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life, literally your soul will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? In a dramatic twist of irony, the landowner not only loses his wealth, he loses the many years he thought he had to enjoy his wealth. He thought his money secured comfort and control, but it really brought neither. Jesus concludes the parable in verse 21. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Note the juxtaposition of the two prepositional phrases for himself toward God. No matter how much money you have or don't have, are you becoming rich toward God? Here's what makes a parable like this so bothersome. Most of us want to be like the rich fool. I would love to have to build a bigger barn. That's a good problem. But remember, the barn's not the problem. It's what he does with the barn and how he feels about the barn. And it's important to see how his self-destructive self-indulgence 
caught him off guard. Jesus wants us to guard our souls because greed sneaks up on us. Oh, it sneaks up on us. We don't even see it coming. We convince ourselves. Next year's vacation has to be bigger and better than this year's. Why? My next car has to be nicer than my current car, does it? Now, ask yourself these questions before you ask your neighbor. We need to be careful not to get judgy with one another because you can't always discern greed by appearances. If your friend drives a better car than you, it doesn't automatically mean she's greedy. I know rich folks who are ridiculously generous with their wealth. I know poor folks who hoard every last dime. Let's be slow to judge by appearance. We said last week, materialism is not about how much stuff you have. It's about what you do with it and how you feel about it. So friends, guard your soul because greed sneaks up on you. Greed sneaks up on you. Now, perhaps you're relieved because you don't struggle with greed. You're not a materialist. You don't care about fancy cars or nice furnishings. And even if you do well financially, you live well under your means. Things don't mean a thing to you. And that's great. But before you assume the words of Jesus are for someone else, read them with me one more time. Back to verse 15. Watch out, he says. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. See, there's another type of greed you may have overlooked. Some people's greed creates a spending problem. Other people's greed creates a saving problem. A saving problem. How can saving be a problem? Well, saving isn't a problem. But spending isn't a problem for that matter. Sure, there's good saving. There's wise saving. Read the Proverbs. But there is a kind of saving that finds its motivation in fear. It's an obsession with saving to be safe. If only I get enough socked away. If only I pay off my house. One kind of greed exhibits an unhealthy prioritization of self. The other kind of greed exhibits an unhealthy source of security. The problem with both is a life defined by money. See, now we're talking about worry, aren't we? Well, no surprise, in the same context in which Jesus talks about the kinds of greed, we read this, Luke 12, verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. He says, don't worry. The present imperative tense in Greek implies ongoing action. Jesus says, let not worrying always be your attitude. Don't worry. Now, he's not asking you to ignore your needs as if they don't matter. They do matter. They matter to God. However, if God is your father, you have nothing to fret about. Jesus elaborates, verse 23, for life is more than food and the body more than clothes. This verse indicates the power of anxiety. Our worries distract us from what really matters in life. Now, have you seen this for yourself? You're so worried about Monday, you can't enjoy Sunday. You're so worried about the meeting tomorrow, you can't enjoy your family tonight. Worry prevents an individual from being fully present because his or her mind is in the future. And Jesus offers a couple of analogies. Verse 24, consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. I picture Jesus as he teaches outdoors, pointing to a bird flying overhead, saying, take a lesson from a raven. They don't worry about their provision. They don't lose sleep over tomorrow's meal. Now, of course, Jesus isn't encouraging laziness. Birds work for their food. And if you work hard, that's wonderful. But the question is, why do you work so hard? Do you work from faith or from fear? In Luke 12, Jesus compared us to ravens in the ancient world. 
Ravens were among the least loved birds, which underscores this point. If God provides for the least of the birds, how much more you and me? Verse 25. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Jesus asks, what good does worry do? Does worry make the time pass quickly? Does worry make you a calmer, more likable human? Does worrying over things for which you have no control make you feel like you're in control? Verse 26. Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? He offers another analogy in verse 27. Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I will tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? If God would go out of his way to paint the landscape with all the colors of the rainbow, though it's so temporary, so fleeting, then why do you worry about your life? The point is not that every one of his followers would be dressed finer than King Solomon. That's pricing the metaphor too far. He's saying, if God clothes the transitory grass of the field, then you can bank on the fact that he'll supply every need of his cherished child. Verse 29. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. Now, when Jesus speaks of pagans, he doesn't want us to picture a druid worshiper somewhere in the ancient world. This word refers to the everyday man or woman who doesn't embrace God as their heavenly father. Now, without a heavenly father, what else would you do? Because it really does depend upon you. But Jesus wants us to compare and contrast our lives with the people around us who don't serve God. Do you chase money and success and security like them? Why? Then we come to the key verse of the passage. Instead of seeking what we will eat or seeking what we will drink, Jesus says, verse 31, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you. As well, the person who prays, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven, that person has absolutely no cause for worry. Most people chase provision and promotions because it's the only way they will survive. It's the only way they will ever amount to anything. But Jesus counters, verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. We're told to seek the kingdom. But then Jesus reminds us how happy God is to give it. Friends, if you really want to learn how to spend and save with faith and freedom, Jesus is thrilled to help you. He is thrilled for you to find freedom from greed in all its forms. And he does, this, he does so right away. Jesus offers a spiritual discipline in this context to help both the materialist and the worrier. And what he offers is the opposite of greed. Now, you might think the opposite of greed is contentment, and that's true in one sense. But the utter opposite of greed is generosity. Verse 33, he says, Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. That's what it means to be rich toward God. Generosity. Generosity. It's a major motif of the kingdom of God. Because God's blessed us to be a blessing. We'll talk about it again next week. By blessing us, he blesses others, and that blesses us. It's generosity. He says, sell your possessions couple things to note. First, he doesn't say sell all your possessions. He said that to one person on one occasion for one reason. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. No, but in the ancient world, think about it. You didn't have banks. You didn't have mutual funds. You didn't have money 
docked away somewhere, most of your wealth was in your possessions, right? So he says to them, hey, sell your stuff. Think about the needs of others. Be generous. Be generous. Instead of just adding to your stuff. To paraphrase Andy Stanley, when we have more than we need, we have to do away with the assumption that it's for our consumption. Chances are, not for all of us, but for a lot of us in this room, chances are you will be making more money in five years than you are making now. Again, I know that's not true for everyone, but it's true for a lot. What's your life going to look like in five years? Will you be driving a Tesla? And there's nothing wrong with a Tesla. That's not my point. But again, no rigid rules, no legalism, and please God help us, no judgment. Maybe we need to do away with the idea that when we have more than we need, it's about us. Us consuming more. More pleasure, more comfort. What if it's not about us? Verse 34, for where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. I want to take back to Paul's words. As we read them in Colossians 3, they also show up in Ephesians. We read this laundry list of sins and they're, oh, ooh, that's embarrassing, that's controversial, that's crazy. And then he comes to this last one, greed. And we think, eh. But then he associates greed with the heinous sin of idolatry. And as a kid growing up in church, I'd read all these stories about the ancient Israelites, and, and they always, you know, they always fell into idolatry. And I always wondered why. I mean, it's a block of wood. Right? Come on, people. God, as they knew him, Yahweh, revealed himself so clearly he provided for his people and even in contexts in which he'd do miracles and miraculously pull him out of drama. I mean, it's just incredible what God would do for him. But the people of God often turned to idols and I just scratched my head and wondered why. Well, let's understand the context. Here they are. They have their plot of land. They have their crops. They have their cattle. They have whatever they have. But then they look over the fence their Canaanite neighbor. And look at their crops. You see, hmm, their crop's pretty green. Fruit's pretty big. Looks a bit juicy. And they notice that there's a difference in there. They're wondering, well, wait a minute. You know, that my Canaanite neighbor is worshiping other gods. He's worshiping Baal or he's worshiping Asherah. And no, there's anything wrong with worshiping Yahweh. But I just wonder, hmm, I just wonder if I hedged my bets a little. See, uh, no one's rejecting Yahweh here. And very rarely in the history of the people of God did they actually reject Yahweh. They just wanted to mix it up a bit. Huh? Put a little trust in Yahweh, put a little trust in Baal. It's going to be great. See how that works? Many, many, many generations later, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Well, baffled at the idolatry of the ancient world, here we fast forward to the first century and Paul writes a letter to a church in Colossae and they may not have the same trouble with idols, but they got a new one. We still got it. A couple thousand years later, I wonder if we got it worse, especially in the Western world. Paul's prescient words... Greed is idolatry. In greed, we've put our hope. In greed, we've put our faith. And we wouldn't call it greed such a nasty word. We'd never call it that way. 
We never call it that, would we? But, but we've put so much stock in our careers and our talents that make us successful at our careers. We've put so much hope in things over which, in the end, we really don't have as much control as we think. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with careers. God blesses us with money and God blesses us with careers. And it's fantastic until it's not. It's fantastic until we put our hope in it. Wasn't that Paul's point last week? So, first, let me ask. Do you have a spending problem? Do you have a spending problem? Are you getting too much out of more? Look, I do not mean we can never upgrade. I do not mean we can never have nice things. I do mean what drives us should be different than what drives the world. If you find yourself lying awake at night longing for a bigger house or a nicer blouse, look deeply into your soul. Is everything all right in there? Secondly, do you have a saving problem? Hmm? You don't have to have much money to love money. You don't have to spend much money to love it either. Some of us have a saving problem. Now, there's wise savings. Then there's worry savings. And that fear to sock it away, 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 shows our lack of faith. What if God is giving you that for him to use you to advance his kingdom in this world? And what are you doing? Sock it away, sock it away, sock it away, sock it away. Because you're fear. Because you put your faith in the wrong thing. I find it fascinating. Very often when we see greed talked about in the scriptures, the love of money, right on its heels is some kind of warning about faith and fear. Some kind of commandment to not be afraid. Happened in Luke 12. Here's another example. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? I don't know if greed's got you or not. But God wants you back. Let's pray. Lord, may you use this powerful passage of Scripture to open our eyes. We see now there are at least two types of greed. We're so creative, we've probably come up with more. But Lord, may our eyes be open to see the reality of our situation. May, may we see accurately how we think and how we feel about money. All of us. There are people in this room who have been wage earners for decades. Lord, remind us you can teach an old dog new tricks. That's what you do in your grace. Teach us, Lord. I know there are people in this room who aren't even sure you're real. May their eyes be opened to the wisdom of your words. May they put them into practice. So you can prove yourself real to them. Even in a sermon series on money. Lord, may all of us this weekend and throughout 
the next several weeks get really serious with you about our money, where it's, it, it's no longer a hot button for us anymore. Because our hearts are in the right place. That's not where our treasure's kept. Not in the bank, not in our homes. Help us to take your word seriously, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to talk to you about homework. Homework will be important over the next several weeks because I'll tell you what I think. I believe in this season... God is going to ask the majority of us to give away more than we've been giving. Now, that's going to be really hard if greed has a grip on you. Does greed have a grip on you? Does greed have a grip on you? Look, the, the subject of money is so sensitive. Oh, we get so fussy. But you've got to understand... To release the grip of greed. The only answer is to trust the words of Jesus and be generous. There's a phrase I say a lot to you. I think I introduced it three or four years ago. I'll keep saying it. Generosity puts money in its rightful place so we can put God in his rightful place. So what does generosity look like for you in this season? We've got to be intentional. We've got to put a lot of thought into this. Money doesn't grow on trees. So what's this going to look like for you? What's it going to look like for you? Here's a simple homework assignment. It's not for everyone. Maybe you need to create a budget. That is so obvious that it's dumb to many of you. Hear me out. First, many of you already have one. Great, I'm not talking to you. Some of you don't need one. Quite honestly, is you never have to worry if you have enough month to month. That's great too. That's great too. More on that later. Uh, I'm not talking to either of you. And most of us need a budget. And um, those of us who haven't created it, here's what I'm not going to tell you. I'm not telling you, oh, you need to create a budget so you, you can use your money wisely and save and do all these things. That is so absolutely true. That is so absolutely biblical. We need to have a very wise fear of the future, right? You know what I'm talking about here. We're balanced. Yeah, we need to be intentional with our money, and some of us are careless with it. Good night. Right? Well, yeah, you need a budget. Great. But you haven't got one yet. That fear of the future hasn't motivated you to get one. So I'm going to give you a new motivation to create a budget. Your new motivation is love. Here's the truth. I said a moment ago, I believe in this season, God is going to ask the majority of us to give away more than we've been giving. Well, we need to wisely, intentionally, and intelligently find where that money is going to come from. So we better know where it's currently going. Let's get serious about this. Let's get serious about being generous people like our generous God. If we're going to learn to do life from Jesus, let's do this, okay? Let's do this together. What might generosity look like for you in whatever circumstance you're in? I don't want to say too much. I've got another message in a couple of weeks on this. But let, let's think it through. No rash decisions. I'm not going to do some kind of high-pressured emotional Give your money away. Good night. 
God gave you a brain for a reason. Yeah. So let's get serious about this. What does generosity look like for you? Last week I recommended a book by Andy Stanley. How to Be Rich. I noted the title. Remember, it's not How to Get Rich. It's How to Be Rich. Uh, we do have copies of this book available today at the back, unless they sold out of them. I don't know if they sold out of them. Um, but uh, we'll get more, and we'll keep getting more. Uh, there are plenty of books like this. We'll recommend more through the series, but this is a good one. It's a safe one from a wise teacher who can just get you to think a little bit differently about your money, its purpose, and and how it may or may not have a grip on your soul. Pick up this book. Grab it on audio. Uh, Some of you might want to study it in groups. There's a great small group curriculum based on this teaching, and maybe you want to study it as a, as a, a community of friends. I highly recommend it. It's wonderful. Also, a verse for you, Luke 12, verse 15. We read it earlier. As well, this graphic, greed sneaks up on you. Both of these images we'll have available for you to download from our online bulletin or from our uh, social media accounts a little later this week. Please stand with me. If you'd like to receive prayer, there will be some people waiting here at the front ready to pray for you. Make your way up and invite them to do so. You know, I never told you what happened to that spider, did I? You know, I may have brought it with me today. True story. At the, at the 9 o'clock service, they, not long after I had shown the, video, the, the photo of the spider... There was some kind of commotion right here in the front rows. There was a spider loose among them, and they were all freaking out. It was delightful. (sighs) Here's my prayer for you. May you guard your soul from greed, that you might be rich toward God. Thanks for being here. Grace and peace.